0: Episode 4, Rock Concert. What you're about to hear is an event that occurred during my time as a peacekeeper. Based on a true and factual event, some details have been changed due to security and confidentiality concerns, but not in a way to affect the veracity of this story. So enjoy this fourth episode, an interesting and insightful account of a life and death moment. They were now coming thick and fast, and I could hear and feel them skipping off the ground around me. I felt a large one impact the side of my light blue UN helmet and it glanced off. As I had exhausted all of my options, I curled up into a ball, and for only the second time in my life, I honestly thought I was done. It was strange what first went through my mind. I found myself vividly picturing it and I desperately hoped that somehow I didn't end up like that body I'd just seen. It was now a couple of weeks since we had arrived into the country and we were informed the mission was still yet to receive its full complement of peacekeepers. With our numbers desperately low and the conditions continuing to deteriorate, the UN pushed to get as many of us out on the road. This caused us to be spread thin, and as a consequence, it became more common and more dangerous to work by yourself. However, personally, it didn't bother me in the slightest, as I'd always much preferred to work solo or by myself, and I had even wriggled out of having a partner this day. The operating conditions were so risky and unsafe, the bulk of the local police that we were supposed to be training were instructed to remain in their stations whenever we patrolled. The UN had determined... They weren't quite up to the task as they were unskilled, poorly trained and poorly equipped. It was probably just as well for them because this day was to turn into a turbulent, bloody and dangerous mess and I suppose my bravado and inner stubbornness would very nearly cost me my life. The day had started out with a really shitty morning and it just went downhill from there. No sooner had I geared up with my equipment and hit the road... Multiple requests for backup kept coming over the radio and I found myself dealing with so many incidents that around mid-morning I had to return back to base and stock up on more capsicum spray. The most commonly attended job would be groups of males fighting one another in the streets, but this wasn't as simple or as uncomplicated as a fistfight. We came to refer to these jobs as rock concerts, and I can assure you my definition of a rock concert would be far different from yours. We can both agree it's defined as a large gathering of people, but at my rock concerts they weren't there to listen to a band. They had gathered for the express purpose of trying to maim or kill each other. So these rock concerts were free and they were a daily event for us to attend. And the typical concert would be attended to by a couple of a hundred angry young males, and invariably we'd find ourselves caught out on the edge. They were difficult to control. And it was very hard to disperse the crowds as they were very well organised, very mobile and well armed. They possessed two weapons of choice, the first of them being rocks of all sizes. Now, I know you may consider a rock not as all that bad, but I can tell you after many years of practising with them, they were plenty skilled, they had plenty of them and they were plenty accurate those rocks would come thick and fast, making it very easy to be struck and cause a serious injury, if not death. However, our greatest fear and concern was their second choice of weapon. As if the rocks weren't enough of a problem, they also used these small, sharp, homemade metal darts. The raw material for these darts was easily obtained, as many years of conflict have resulted in damage to the bulk of their infrastructure, the concrete buildings in particular. As they were damaged from explosions or from being set alight, they were twisted and broken structures, which provided an abundance of easily obtained lengths of steel from the metal reinforcement within the concrete. These metal reinforcements would be similar to the thickness of a pencil, so they'd cut the steel into short lengths, flattened it at one end with a rock or a heavy implement, and fashioned it into a sharp and pointed tip with the barb partly up the shaft. Shredding a nylon rice bag into small coloured strips, they secured these strips with tree vine at the opposing end of of the barb to balance the dart during flight. Then, cutting a junction from a tree in the shape of a Y, it would be laced with multiple elastic bands to create a powerful and a mobile slingshot. These darts were sharp, lethal projectiles that were hard to detect and then, just to step it up a level, random numbers of them would be dipped in dog faeces in the hope it would cause septicemia to the wound should it penetrate. I experienced many incidents involving the use of these darts, but what I witnessed at a local hospital one day, and I used the term hospital very loosely, drove home the serious and dangerous nature of their use. I watched this doctor remove a dart that was deeply embedded in the left temple of a young male. It took a great deal of his strength to pull it out. And when it did come, the barb that was halfway down the shaft dragged a lot of other body matter out with it. I'm telling you, a mental note from that day, avoid these darts at all cost. We did notice a large increase in their use, so some of the guys would remove their bulletproof vests and drape them over the doors of their vehicles when patrolling. The purpose of this was to stop, or at the very least, slow down random unseen darts from penetrating the side of the door and impacting your body. So with midday came another increase in calls, one in particular will forever be etched in my mind. It was the voice of a female peacekeeper and she made a frantic request for multiple units to assist at the gathering of more than 100 youths fighting a group of 10. By the time I managed to arrive, the group had scattered, apparently having completed their task. I wandered over to the remaining group of peacekeepers as they were huddled together next to a small outlying mud hut. Curious to see what was drawing their attention, what I would see there would haunt me. They were looking at a large, undiscernible white mass that was melted up against the bottom of a wall. The only thing that gave away what it was and how it came to be that way was the vast number of sticks and stones surrounding and on top of it. The large group of youths had literally stick and stone to death, one of the ten. What I was looking at had been a person, another human being, that had been turned into a mass of unidentifiable white and bloody pulp. Never had I witnessed, and nor would I, such a horrible, gruesome and tragic method of death such as this, and it has graphically stayed with me since. So when the afternoon arrived, a twist came with it. I wasn't yet to know, but just as I'd witnessed the definition of a cruel death, I would now equally feel its fear. One of the more competent members of my contingent, Justin, was also patrolling one up this afternoon, and not unlike me, he much preferred it that way. From day one in mission, Justin and I had gelled. Similar in height and build, not necessarily age, I rated him highly as an operator, regardless of having many years less service than the bulk of us. Policing skills are something that's developed and adapted over many years and we all have our own styles, skill base and methods. Justin's method was competent and solid and his surprise selection to the contingent was to prove justified on multiple occasions. Throughout his time in mission, Justin was to show courage and strength above and beyond and while individual efforts on Tura were not to be recognised, had they been, I reckon he would have been at the front, second and third in line in my opinion. So when we were on patrol, we always kept tabs on each other. But it was to be more so today, as I knew he would have his hands full. I kept a very close ear to the job he was working, as it was obvious things were really heating up. Justin had been detailed to manage a parade of probably 500-plus legally congregated locals. Half of them were in the rear of trucks, the other half were on foot, and they were all chanting anti-government themes. Though they were noisy, they had been compliant, and I listened closely when he indicated the parade had stopped to let those in the trucks disembark before the entire group continued on foot in one large moving mass heading towards the capital. Not long after Justin's update, a second police unit announced a large opposing group were heading towards his location, spouting pro-government messages, the opposite to Justin's group. Estimated to be in similar numbers, experience had shown us that should they engage one another, it would not end well. So Justin rightly issued instructions to the other police unit and requested they redirect their group north and away from his path. So for the next 15 minutes, other jobs swirled around on the channel until Justin was informed that the redirection efforts had been unsuccessful and they would soon be upon him. I immediately left my patch and headed his way. It proved difficult to get even remotely close to Justin's location as the crowd had already swelled and they were spilling in all directions. I requested an update, and when he didn't respond, those spidey hairs on the back of my neck prickled again. When he finally did manage to reply, the increased level of noise in the background and the nature of his update indicated he didn't need to say it was turning ugly. Having come together, the two groups had melded into a fighting, warring mess. And then, in a fast yet controlled and measured voice, Justin requested backup, so I pushed that little bit harder and used the front of my vehicle to, let's say, gently encourage others to move. It would have been no more than another five minutes later when Justin upped the backup request to urgent. Endeavouring to be heard over the commotion, this time his voice was noticeably louder, and when you hear a sense of urgency in another officer's voice, naturally your concern levels rise. However, in this case, hearing it in Justin only served to double my fears as it was very uncharacteristic coming from someone normally as calm and as capable as he. Having now developed into a serious situation, I broke the rules of communication and radioed Justin directly, asking him for his exact position. This time, the voice that came back sounded understandably distressed as he stated he was surrounded and being attacked. I called on the operator to double the request for backup as an officer was requiring urgent, immediate assistance and I grabbed my helmet. I ran from the safety of my vehicle and bolted towards Justin. It was utter chaos. Hundreds of agitated people with banners, sticks and metal poles were shouting at one another and random fighting had broken out. Screaming at them to move, I ran hard with a large party pack of capsicum spray in my left hand and used my free hand and shoulder to barrel into those in my path. The open ground where I knew Justin to be was only 30 metres in front of me, but the closer I got, the more I slowed. The crowd had thickened and turned inward, all of them shouting a loud, rhythmic and a foreboding chant. Knowing that stealth is a better method of advancing than announcing yourself, I stopped yelling and resorted to pushing harder. I knocked some of them to the dirt before bursting through the crowd and into open ground where I found Justin 10 metres in front of me, and in a very bad way. As he wore no helmet, he had his left arm up to his face to deflect any incoming projectiles, while his right hand held the capsicum pack out in front of him. Heavily affected by exposure to secondary spray from the capsicum, he faced the crowd and moved in a circle in a staggered and an unbalanced fashion. I noted he had already expended his first canister of capsicum spray as it was spinning on the ground at his feet. He yelled and screamed at the crowd to back off, words in English they wouldn't understand, but I'm sure his actions they did. Now on his second and last canister, and he would have been unsure of how long it needed to last, Justin was smart enough in the heat of the moment to sensibly release only short, intermittent bursts to ration what was remaining. My own history told me what he would be experiencing. As he had copped a heavy dose of spray, he would be partially blinded, disorientated and struggling to breathe properly, which when combined also made him dangerous to approach. To get over the noise of the crowd, I screamed out to him and he immediately turned towards my voice and responded to my name. To make him aware I was approaching, I repeatedly called his name out as I ran into the centre of the circle and to his side. When I got to him, he dropped to a knee, physically and mentally drained. Couldn't believe just how loud the swirling noise was coming from the crowd around us as it was deafening. I reached down to him as there was no time to stop and consider options. Let's get the fuck out of here, I yelled. With more rocks now beginning to bounce around our feet, I grabbed the extraction handle at the top and rear of his bulletproof vest and helped him up. Holding the handle with a firm grip, I pushed him in front of me, so I decided this would be the best method of exit, considering his sight was compromised. This way, I could keep a hold of the handle to push direct and move him away from something should have come from the front and risk him. I couldn't let him be behind me because should he trip, it would have compromised both of us. And if he was next to me, it would present us as too big a target. So we started to move forward in the direction of my car, screaming at the crowd to move out of our way. Now, strategically, we couldn't deploy the spray to the front of us as we'd walk straight into it so I shot Bursoff behind and to my right, Justin to his left, until he expended the rest of his pack and he threw the empty can. The locals had quickly learned to be fearful of the spray, and they parted wide enough to avoid copping a primary dose. Fortunately, the party packs had good reach and we managed to dose a few of them with secondary exposure, which forced them to scatter even further. And as the crowd slowly opened up, the faster we moved, particularly as now even more rocks were starting to come from behind. They bounced off my helmet and vest, and I became increasingly concerned my one and only spray was quickly running low. Looking ahead, I could see the crowd had thinned out further, so I pushed Justin hard in the back, and I let go of the handle. Run straight, I instructed him. Now, I can tell you that in these situations, adrenaline is your best friend, and Justin had it in spades. He bolted, and even though still partially blinded, thankfully ran straight and directly towards my car, which could be seen in the distance. Now highly agitated and forgetting they were meant to be fighting each other, the bulk of the crowd turned on us. This encouraged me to run just as hard as Justin, and I pushed hard to catch up to him. Until. Strangely, initially I didn't feel a thing. I impacted the ground heavily. I felt my thigh holster take the bulk of the impact as my right leg bent upwards at an awkward angle because of it. I briefly slid on my side before rolling onto my front and coming to a dusty stop on the ground. What the fuck? I had no idea what caused me to be here and straight away I knew I was in the worst possible situation to be in any circumstance and even more so now on the ground. The one fortunate thing was I had come to rest in the perfect position to perform a burpee, and I did it without hesitation. Even though my hands were now partly bloody with gravel rash from slowing the slide, I pushed up with my arms and I drew my legs towards my chest to bounce up. But only one leg obeyed. For whatever reason, my right leg didn't function, and halfway up, and not expecting it, I found myself on one leg and off balance. I tipped over and fell uncontrollably back onto my side. Now seeing my predicament, the rocks came thicker and seemingly more accurate than before and started to hit me all over. The ones that bounced off my helmet and vest weren't a problem. It was the ones that hit my exposed arms and legs that hurt. But then it turned frightening. As they could see, I was obviously injured and now singled out on the ground. The chant was joined with a banging of metal poles the sound ringing out as a call to arms or some form of signal to attack. i had never heard or seen this before, and it was incredibly unnerving. With no spray or other passive equipment left, I rolled onto my back and reached for the one and only remaining option, a lethal option. I used my left hand to reposition the holster as it had slid around my thigh from the impact with the ground. As I held it in position, I used my right master hand to push the retention hood out of the way to allow the release of my firearm. I felt my hand slip slightly on the grip, probably due to the blood in my palm, but I managed to maintain enough grip to pull the Glock 17 upwards. I've got to say, there was a small degree of comfort knowing that there were 17 rounds in that magazine and I had a second mag with another 17 on my belt should I need them. I pulled. However. The Glock wouldn't come. Your training and processes kick in, and I felt for the retention hood to check it wasn't impeding the release. I could feel it was down and out of the way, so reassured it was, pulled upwards again, but it still refused to release. I'm not embarrassed to say a small degree of panic crept in, and I started to pull rapidly on the Glock a number of times, but it wouldn't succumb. A rock skipped off the dirt and it hit me on the side of my face before another one, clearly larger than most due to the pain it caused, impacted my hip. couldn't understand why the glock wouldn't come and I glanced down. I could see the retention hood was clear and there was nothing obviously wrong. However, by taking that small amount of time to look down, I had exposed the top of my back above the vest and a rock impacted the base of my neck. That one hurt and caused a flash of white to appear in front of me. I felt dizzy and with my right hand still firmly on the Glock, I partly rolled over onto my right side as I knew I needed to secure my firearm from others and I curled up into a protective ball. As the weirdest of thoughts and pictures ran through my head, I felt downward pressure on my helmet and then heard Justin's loud warning voice. Firing, he screamed. Having realised I hadn't made it back to the car, Justin returned, this time with his Glock 17 in hand. Pushing my head down and into the ground, he let go a rapid-fire half-dozen rounds into the air. The noise of that Glock so close to my ears was deafening and it drowned out everything else. Now having obtained a distinct advantage, he pulled me up and, putting an arm around my waist, started to drag and push me towards the car. As expected, The repeated firing of the Glock had well and truly scattered the crowd and they were now a long way out of rock-throwing range. With Justin's help, we managed to drag my damaged and aching leg to my four-wheel drive, where he shoved me across the back seat of the now smashed and rock-damaged car. Justin jumped in and for the next few kilometres, he drove it as if he'd stolen it. As my leg had totally failed to work, at the time I thought I must have been shot or even worse, hit by a dart, but I was pleased to see it wasn't either. The only explanation was it had been a rock, and a big one, big enough that it took me down at the calf. It put me in bed for a few days, until I was able to return to work, albeit still limping. When we inspected my holster, what we found was the internal metal casing had been crushed, probably from the heavy impact with the ground, which it had effectively squashed and seized the firearm within. We couldn't remove the Glock manually and in the end we were forced to cut the holster open to release it. Clearly an unknown fault with this brand and model of holster. Let me say I feel incredibly indebted to Justin for his actions that day and his unselfish bravery that potentially saved my life. But I know for you were to ask him about it, he'd just say it was another day at the office. Another day in a country like no other. If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to be informed when a new episode is posted, please follow my Instagram page, truecrime.ericwelsh. Thank you.